0: Case file number 5.08. Sweet science. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. Don't no, Chief. You, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now, just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, <laughs> Chief. All I need is more time. Sooner or later, they're going to slip up, and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson.
1: Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker.
2: Do you know anybody who's uh, got diabetes?
1: Yeah, actually, a lot of my family either had or has diabetes.
2: Wow. Uh, So they have to do the finger prick thing constantly, that kind of thing?
1: If they could afford it, uh, because insulin is notoriously uh, crazy expensive. And so a lot of them uh, could not afford insulin.
2: Well, so like that's a really big deal. And we're going to touch on that just briefly. We're going to actually talk today about Internet of Things. This is basically the second episode of Internet of Things, because I think that a lot of the things we're going to talk about related to diabetes and insulin pumps touches on all kinds of stuff related to Internet of Things, right to repair, oligopolies. Mm -hmm. But the big overall thing about all of this is that like standing in the shadow of all of this, even if all of this worked out, even if the magic we got some magic happening here. We still have extraordinarily expensive insulin in America. Right, yeah. The the prices are going into Canada, something like a 10th. California has decided to try and build their own production facility for insulin because they spend so much on insulin with the uh, state-provided health insurance that it's worth it for them to break the, uh, the oligopoly. Oligopoly is the economics term for not a monopoly, but a small group. Of uh, organizations that either tacitly or explicitly collude to control right. prices.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty insane. Like I've you know watched plenty of uh, YouTube videos where they interview people in other countries and they're like, "Oh, you have to pay for it." Like what?
2: Well, uh, to that point, uh, the World Health Organization just a couple of years ago, I think it was twenty somewhere between twenty fifteen and twenty eighteen. I, I didn't actually note it down in my notes, but they declared um, access to insulin a human right. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, if you wanted to argue the United States is becoming a third world country, <laughs> this might be a, a tough argument to get around. Here in the United States, you're only
1: human if you got that money. I
2: mean, as you've heard me argue before, even as well employed as you and I are, I am not entirely not worried about my ability to access health care as I get older. Anyway, so diabetes has been a problem. For humans for a really long time, like probably since humans started humaning. Just very quickly, your body needs to regulate the amount of sugar it gets in to and to metabolize it correctly. Your body does this by releasing insulin when the glucose blood glucose levels get too high. The insulin is manufactured by the pancreas. It's not just that simple, but those are the important parts for the parts that we're going to talk about today but to start with insulin was isolated and the ability to isolate it for human use got a nobel prize in 1923 okay There's about four or five guys that were in that whole thing banting best and Collop and mcleod published the work and got the nobel prize uh there was another guy um Nikolai palescu uh who did a lot of work on this but didn't do the work that was specifically about the human use. The work that he did, the isolations that he did, were experimentally important, but weren't suitable for for human use. So he wasn't actually included in the Nobel Prize. And this is like a whole thing in
0: yeah. in medical yeah.
2: circles. But <laughs> I just wanted to make sure to mention that uh, lest lest we get flamed by our dozens and dozens of users uh, or of, uh, of of listeners. But the thing about the process from 1923. And there's a whole story about these guys and their own competitions, but they were worried about uh, a company. In fact, Eli Lilly had kind of threatened or alluded to that they might patent it themselves. So these guys patented it, but they basically sold it for a dollar to the University of Toronto under the okay. expectation it would be used for, for, for human good. Right, yeah. In perpetuity. And this is the story you hear a lot, that insulin is not encumbered by intellectual property in a reasonable way. And that's true for the original, you know, the insulin classic formula. But there is, to be fair to modern research, new production methods, somewhat different insulin preparations. I like, I'm not an organic chemistry person. I don't understand the, the, the differences, but they mm-hmm. allow for faster absorption. Okay. And this yeah, actually yeah. matters for the, for kind of the responsiveness of the dose you get and, and uh, how easy it is for you to control how fast you get relief. If you're in trouble, that kind of thing. Mm, okay, cool. But we are at the point where production of insulin is safe and efficient for the folks that have scaled it up. Uh, originally in the 80s, like 82, they figured out how to use recumbent DNA, I believe is it recumbent DNA, to modify E. coli and yeast to produce human insulin. Oh,
1: that's nice. Yeah,
2: Yeah, but like this was in 1982. So the patents Mm. for that are over. There was some other work done that drove down production costs even further uh, by using safflowers modified in a different but analogous way to produce, uh, to produce insulin. So there have been innovations since the original insulin classic formula. And I don't want to take away from that. Some of that research was paid for by these pharmaceutical companies and some of it, uh, everything like that is supported by the public research that is done in the U S and elsewhere at the university level, the right, publicly yeah. funded stuff. So like yeah. whenever anybody argues about cost of drug price development, The gorilla in the room, and there's a book called The $800 Million Pill, um, is that a lot of the research that leads to this is publicly funded. And so there is a little bit of an unearned windfall, or at least there's an argument for an unearned windfall by pharmaceutical companies profiting off of public research. Mm. But again, I guess we're not going to get completely away from the intellectual property discussions, but um, (laughs) there's the framing of the whole diabetes insulin thing. And we're gonna be t- the stuff we're gonna be talking about is primarily going to be about treating type one diabetes. Type two diabetes has complications where the stuff that we're gonna talk about doesn't really apply. At least not in any of the reading that I did. Okay. Yeah. So you did an episode on Barnaby Jack.
1: Yes, yes I did.
2: He talked about his work with pacemakers, how he figured out that he could interrupt certain kinds of, of heart rhythmic devices. They're pacemakers and there are things that are a little bit different right from a distance and he did that presentation i think in like 2010 at black hat 2010 2011 and right, in right, fact yeah. there was a uh did you ever watch the show homeland
1: no but i think i i know the clip you might be talking about i think i've seen it on youtube
2: in there there's a storyline where the vp is uh pacemaker gets hacked remotely and kills the vp
1: yes yes yeah i think i've seen that clip yeah,
2: yeah and Barnaby Jack was asked, "Hey, cuz you know, he's the right guy to ask about this. Hey, could that really have happened?" He's like, "Well, maybe not a pacemaker, but this other kind of medical device. Yeah, sure, that <laughs> probably could have happened." And, uh, the quote he had was, well, "Yeah, when I first saw it, I was like, you don't need the serial number to do that."
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, they made it look harder in the uh, the TV show.
2: Yeah, well, that might have been to make people feel better. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the next year, the year after, he he um he did similar work on insulin pumps and he showed that i believe it was a medtronic uh medtronic um insulin pump had a flaw in it where you could dump the insulin and basically kill the user from about 300 feet away
1: Jeez. yeah
2: it was a little bit more complicated than that a researcher messed with his own insulin pump and said hey this is going to be too hard to execute and the, and that's what the uh manufacturer said and the was like no nah, it's not that hard and uh, realized that frequency scanning for the pump, he could identify all the information he needed and demonstrated that he could uh, attack. He actually attacked a live pump, didn't do the dump insulin thing, but did a stop the right. pump thing on stage mm-hmm. to somebody's that... live insulin pump.
1: Yeah, that's, that's uh, insane.
2: A volunteer friend of his. So I'm, I assume that they that they had worked this out. Although as you talked about, Barnaby Jack was not exactly known for his ironclad safety protocols. <laughs> Anyway, so you identify these radio vulnerabilities in the pumps. So this is Internet of Things. Everything you have you use has a computer in it. And these are medical devices that have computers in them. And not just right. hospital-level medical devices where maybe potentially you could have some defenses built into the structure, the physical structure. If you were worried about people using radio stuff, you could identify them in a way not dissimilar from uh, Wi-Fi defense systems. You're looking for weird radio emanations, and you say, "Hey, wait a minute." You could make maybe make a detection system for that. Maybe
1: right, yeah, Sp- yeah.
2: spitballing. But like these are things that everybody that uses them carries around everywhere. It's not just you have a physical location that you can control. It's the same problem with Internet of Things. In fact, it's a little bit worse than a lot of the devices we think of, of like the Internet-controlled light bulbs or the ring camera, where at least you have control of what's happening in your house with that. These are everywhere, wherever you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's a life-critical thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is a major difference between uh, turning someone's lights off and uh, murdering them.
2: Yeah. So the nice way of talking about this whole like intellectual property versus fair use question is right to repair your ability to get the parts and the ability to actually change the parts in like your smartphones and your laptops Mm -hmm. apple has done things that people have accused them of of uh of making it more difficult to actually do the repairs Mm -hmm. right be a third party doing repairs there's the well known or at least it's been talked about quite a lot and maybe we'll do an episode specifically on it um although maybe after the ukraine conflict considering the ukraine component of it but the john deere right to repair issues of farmers agricultural uh agricultural workers trying to repair their john deere systems and they can't because the firmware is under drm and yeah. they've had to like hack and get the, get a hacked firmware that It's harder to, you know, get the providence of and know that it's not it's not actually malicious.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
2: In order to repair or enhance the thing that they bought and they own. Right. Yeah. So like that's the right to repair argument. But the real thing here is about fair use and intellectual property mechanisms that are built to just stop you from using a thing that you fairly and reasonably bought. Mm-hmm. Right. And the right to repair comes after right to hack. Mm-hmm. The work that Barnaby did to identify the vulnerability is important, even if there wasn't any enhanced functionality. Right. yeah. And when you talk about people getting sued for those things, and that's not necessarily the case here for Barnaby Jack, but there was very much the other thing, which is the chilling effect there was noise in that world that talked about the fact that because these hacks existed and were publicized, that maybe people who needed these devices didn't use them.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
2: But the thing is, is that Barnaby's fault or is that the pump manufacturer's fault?
1: Yeah, no, it's the pump manufacturer's fault. Like.
2: <laughs> right. But the blame from those articles and i just read them you know in the last mm-hmm. couple of days as i was you know getting everything straight for this for this episode right were squarely aimed at the researcher
1: how dare you point out the the serious flaw in our system
2: right and as i think we've talked about before a fair bit is that like this is where all computer infosec started this is why we mm-hmm. have the black hat movement is that the the white hats quote unquote um and that's what they were Called in the store of oh, the whole story were the vendors and the vendors had backdoored their own stuff. They knew about vulnerabilities that they didn't patch. Mm-hmm, right. We knew that they weren't trustworthy. Yeah. And so we've already been through this in the 90s, in the 80s. We know that the right to hack is important. And it's gone from us as the as the sysadmin folks to devices that everybody uses all the time because everything's a computer now yeah exactly as i was doing this I was like this feels like a thing where i'm yelling a lot about intellectual property rights but it really <laughs> is an iot episode <laughs> mm-hmm. but the thing was that barnaby had his fun and used an insulin pump to squirt water at people you know dozens of feet away mm-hmm. and scared some people with the hack but here's the thing 2013 a guy named John Kostick, his son has diabetes, and he had a um, an insulin pump. Right, and like this technology did make his son's life better, but it's a system where the where the pump basically tells you, "Hey, your glucose is 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 low." That the the system is a is the the CGM, uh, continuous glucose monitor, that you know maybe you need to hit the thing. So there's an alarm, and it just wasn't loud enough for the situations that they found themselves in. Okay. So he was like, okay, how do I make this louder?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He happened to know about Barnaby Jack's work and use that as a jumping off point to get the data from the pump directly. Right. So all he was trying to do was make the make, make it a little bit louder. But he ended up talking about this with another guy named Ben West and Ben West and him together figured out the whole protocol by which the pump worked.
1: Interesting. Okay.
2: So they had accidentally built what's called an open loop system. And they figured out that now that they had both pieces, Mm -hmm. they could hook them together computationally. They could make an algorithm from the continuous glucose monitor side to activate the pump automatically okay and put an algorithm in between now that algorithm is not simple because it's not just hey you have this much glucose coming in this is how much glucose you need or how much insulin you need coming out the insulin Mm. doesn't work immediately instantaneously right right so the levels will like be continuously changing so it's not just what's the measurement now it's the whole function of of the direction things are going and what happens yeah. when you hit the intervention? So like there's real work here. It was not just, you know, X in X times something. <laughs> yeah. Y out. Glucose um,
1: equals zero plus one. Yes.
2: But they iteratively built on this algorithm to improve it based on performance. And they closed the loop. Mm-hmm. This is why this is called looping. But it's reliant on the continuous glucose monitor on one end and basically an API for a pump on the other. Right. So they said, hey, we got something here. They originally called their work the Night Scout, but they eventually called it OpenAPS. Uh, APS is Artificial Pancreas System. And they built a reference implementation for this. And if you go to openAPS.org, you can go and look at all of this. Okay. They don't sell it as a thing. They can't. Like, this is a medical device. If you want to do it to yourself, that's fine. But anybody who does it to you is taking on some serious risk. Right. Like legal risk, even if you want to help, if anything goes wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: But the system they built, the, as they designed it, they designed it to kind of fail safe. You lose signal, you create an alarm, and you don't do anything.
1: Mm. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense.
2: You get certain, you know, the conditions that could potentially put you in a dangerous situation, there's brackets on what it'll do without human intervention. Um, so they built it. They built it to fail, say fail open, as, as I usually say when we're when we're talking about like potentially preventative systems, things <clears throat> that could break auto- things automatically, failing open versus failing closed. But it relies on the pumps that had these vulnerabilities in them, the pumps that people could actually hack. Right. Yeah. And there's been a secondary market for these older pumps that have had that have known vulnerabilities that people can exploit in order to get the information out of them that black market has existed for a fair chunk of time right there's been some research on these systems there's actually been several papers i've read a few of them the one that i took a, a good hard look at actually was an nih research paper where using an open an open aps system the before and after the improvements of the amount of time that your readings were in the good range, Mm -hmm. they were all over 75%. And that was a 10 to like 30% improvement over the before statistic in all of the, uh, the cases that they listed. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's limited to specifically open APS and there were specific populations and everything, but this is an NIH study or an NIH paper that this came from. This like, this Mm -hmm. is not, from nowhere and again um i think it was a lancet.net uh i was able to find like half a dozen other ones that i looked through before i before i uh was like no i can't go down this rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> so like real research has been done on systems that are related to this
0: mm-hmm, but
2: we know that they're good they were good enough where the fda was trying to push for a couple of open standards for gcm output for automated insulin delivery, AID, um, and a few other components of the, of, of the system. But even though this basically came out in 2017, we're not getting a lot of actual improvement here. Right. There are secondary companies that are building mechanisms that take the GCM data and do the algorithm and try and talk to the pump. But here's the thing. Pump manufacturing in the U S is constrained to only a small number of manufacturers at this point. Mm. Only like three or four of them. Really? And one the biggest one is trying to buy the smallest one. (laughs) (laughs) Capitalism. I mean, and that's the thing, like this is the same things that we're seeing in the pharmaceutical industry where I know this is a, a hacker history podcast, but you know, that I'm a bit of an economics weenie too. And it, this is a market problem. People talk about markets always being efficient. The thing is, we know states that they're not. And in particular, here, what we know is that people are willing to spend more on health, on health outcomes, than is actuarially fair. Mm-hmm. This is essentially the, the built in assumption to all of the price gouging that happens in the US health system. Yeah, that The fear of pain, misery, and death will make you pay more. I don't think that comes to it as a big shock. No, and, not at all. And that is what the pharmaceutical consolidation stuff, what the medical device consolidation stuff, what the healthcare premium, you know, and, and, and cost is driving those things up and up and up. Um, and if you look at the data, it's been going on for a couple of decades now. Healthcare costs are going up at something between two and four times the rate of inflation. So, like, they're they're going up faster than every than your money is going up. Like, yeah, yeah. your buying your buying power is going up. It's not the only thing, although I would say that many of the other things that qualify in that in that range are also problematic. But
1: yeah, it, it's pretty insane. I don't know the exact number, but you know, I've heard countless times that like some crazy high percentage of Americans that are like basically one ER visit away from like complete abject poverty.
2: Yeah. And there's no price transparency in almost anything medical related, um which is another part of the problem. And I I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying not to get too far in this soapbox, but it's <laughs> yeah. But it's a major problem. I it, I was not particularly zealous about some of this stuff until I started doing this podcast and going into some of the intellectual property stuff that's related right. to that, that we, that I've come up with from doing research here. It's like, no, no, the guys I thought that were kind of going off the rails, maybe they were right. <laughs> <laughs> and that the weird thing is like the FDA has these proposed standards built but There doesn't seem to be a lot of movement on there. In fact, there's a there's a blog, savvy diabetic, and I meant to say this at the beginning of the episode. I mm. had turned on to like all of the stuff related to this from Cory Doctorow's blog, pluralistic.net. He did an article about this, and I was like, there's so much here, but there's absolutely the tech side of the episode of, of an episode in this,
1: right? Yeah.
2: Um, so the link to the savvy diabetic, I got through to Corey Doctorow's site, and savvy diabetic. Claims in that blog that there is collusion between the FDA and Dexcom, the biggest of the the pump manufacturers. And maybe it's a captured regulator thing. Yeah. It looks tough. It looks weird that there was what looked like a lot of progress until or five years ago and now there's nothing and we have these companies that are kind of waiting in the wings with all the technology ready to go as soon as the data and the interface from the continuous glucose monitoring side and the automated insulin delivery side are standardized and open. Right, yeah. um, in fact, I mean, this is not dissimilar from, and this is another Internet of Things kind of thing, the standardization of the OBD 2 port on your car. Your ability to get a widget to to look at your codes, clear them yourself, or you know, at least read them, because I know that I've done that. I've uh read the codes off and then taken a car to the shop to just make sure that what they told me was wrong was what was in the computer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty <laughs> insane to me. I was just talking, uh, I forget to who, but um, you know, with electric cars, you know, there's the Tesla plug, the CCS, the um oh shoot i can't forget but i think there's like three or four other plugs and i i think that's kind of gotten wrangled already like thankfully um, yeah but the, the same with like um you know all the different ports for charging your phones
2: heck just putting it on on usb and standardizing the voltages um one of the articles douglas adams the guy who wrote hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy was a was a mac advocate from way back this is before I believe he died before OSX ever happened, actually. Mm. But uh, one of the articles he wrote was about all of the different charging bricks he needed, and when we get to be have a standardized um, DC power connector. Yeah. And after his death, we got USB, and at least everything plugs into a USB port. Um, so that's an improvement. But you still have, I mean, Apple tried twice. To uh, come up with their own connector, yeah, exactly. And uh, they tried really hard to uh, burden the Lightning connector with uh, intellectual property, and, and they they only kind of succeeded on that one. Right. Yeah. So, I think actually, but generally, that's a good point. Is that, um, and it's the other another thing that we see with a, with a, with pharmaceuticals and these insulin devices that you don't have to necessarily have hard DRM just by making it more complicated you can you can have a uh, a crushing effect on the on the ability for for people to innovate.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
2: I mean, they have an oligopoly of of device manufacturers for these insulin pumps in the US. And because the cost of entry is so high because it's a medical device. It's not just, "Hey, can I build a pump?" It's, "Hey, can I get it approved by the FDA?"
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: And truly it, I believe that there's that 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 I want an FDA to work and work well, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and like make sure that pumps that don't work right don't get on the market. But it means that getting a startup to provide those insulin pumps because they think they see a major market problem here is very hard. Yeah, that oligopoly gets to stay not because they have a specific intellectual property thing that will kill entry. It's that because of a combination of startup costs mm-hmm. and their relationships with all the businesses they have relationships with, the barriers to entry are too high. yeah,
0: yeah, for exactly. there to
2: be a competitor that makes them change the way that they do business. Mm-hmm. So maybe was a little weird, but this but that was that was my crack at uh at, at another internet of Things episode,
1: yeah, yeah, it raises a lot of good points um, especially just on that like barrier to entry thing for.
2: Well, it's also true. I mean, that, it's a mirror of the insulin creation mm-hmm. thing. Uh, there's, in fact, a project out there called openinsulin.org for brewing your own insulin. Um, really? Yeah. I, that scares me a little bit. I, I was not able to get deep into the actual execution of what they're talking about. But mm-hmm. the fact that people are being compelled to take that as a way to deal with the cost problem is scary to me
1: yeah i mean it's it's insane um and like i'll say before i i say this uh do not do not do this uh we're not a medical podcast uh don't listen to my advice or like think it's a good way because i will tell you how horrible it was but when i first moved from you know my hometown i didn't have any health insurance and Mm -hmm. i was routinely getting bronchitis like every year and you know you can't go to the clinic uh Without health insurance you can't get um antibiotics without mm-hmm. health insurance so uh, like in delving through the internet i found a resource that was actually a lot of like um ex-army folks who were dealing mm-hmm. with the same thing and it was go to your local pet store and the fish antibiotics will also work too but they're not in the dosage for humans and so you have to kind of like homebrew your own to try to like treat your bronchitis and like, you, you run a severe risk, so, like, never do this. Yeah. But, you know, that's what some people have to deal with is, like, okay, well, either my bronchitis turns to pneumonia and I die, or I go to PetSmart and just try to basically, like, mad scientist my way back to health.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a risk management decision, but you're making people take those risk management decisions when there's a solution, a known good solution out there, or at least a known very low risk solution out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's just artificially inflated for price.
2: Yeah. And well, it's not just, as you said, the, the price wasn't really what killed you there because even paying full price for um, generic antibiotics would have mm. might've been within your range. It's all the gatekeeping around it.
1: Yes, yes, going mm-hmm. to see the doctor, get the prescription, get the mm-hmm. referral, all that stuff. You know, you're talking probably like five to $10,000 right there just in fees. Mm-hmm. And for, for like, yeah, like the $200 bottle of antibiotics.
2: If that, again, generics, uh, it might have been 50000
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. So everybody out there, don't die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I really do hope this one gets better. It's crazy to me that we have NIH doing, compiling research on this stuff, and mm-hmm. we have an FDA that isn't enabling it, and we should, have, we should have these solutions.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Find out about new episodes at r slash Hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.